this week on the nonprofit news feed, we have some great news from the week of January 10th. And we're talking about acquisitions going on by PE firms, Pew Research Center, just kind of what we think about the top 2021 findings and some other interesting bills and things going on in the sector. Nick, how's it going? It's going good, George. Happy second week of 2021. It's already been a whirlwind. We did it. (laughs) All of our predictions turn out the window. I love all the predictions that like, we predicted that this would happen. It's already happened. Okay, now we're on to the more extreme of what's going to going to happen and surprise us. And it's it's fun watching the news with the lens of nonprofit. I enjoy it. It's kind of how I view the world. <laughs> I do as well. And our first story is actually a trend. I would say I'm gonna posit it as a trend, but this is a story as reported by the Nonprofit Times that the acquisition of Network for Good um, is being backed by a private equity firm that is also rolling up acquisition of numerous other nonprofit technology products. So this story says that the same venture firm that brought that bought every action, social solutions, and cyber grants under one corporate roof has just added network for good to its roster. Um, So the as-yet-unnamed firm, referred to as, quote-unquote, the company, um, is being funded by a UK-based private equity group called Apex Partners LLP. And the nonprofit Times reports that in The terms of the deal were not uh, disclosed, um, but estimates in addition to the 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 worth estimates the the worth of the organization to be north of 300 million um, for a combined value in the neighborhood of of three billion. Um, So this is this is some major, major stuff. And the the bottom line for nonprofit orgs is that nonprofit tech is consolidating. So this acquisition means that uh, network for good, every action, salsa labs. GiveGab, Mobilize, Social Solutions, Cyber Grants are all technically owned by the same people. And I guess it's still too early to see what the downstream effects of this are because they're still all kind of like separate products now. But it's quite interesting. I wonder what your take on this is, George. A few things. I think it's a huge plus positive signal that PE firms, private equity firms like this, see the nonprofit sector, specifically in the United States, as a huge growth opportunity. They see it as something, as a sector that's going to grow, that's going to continue to need the goods, services, and SaaS solutions that these provide. Number two is they looked around the market and saw that BlackBod is this giant, unchallenged elephant in the room. And guess what? There's an opportunity to create the other large contender in that arena. And I think, generally speaking, when you've got more larger competitors like that that can compete at that scale, it tends to drive prices down, assuming there's no, obviously, collusion and monopoly here. Based on the fact that Apex Partners is a actually London-based, though they have many, many offices, London-based uh, PE firm with over 61 billion, I believe, in management. Like, uh, I think they're going to be doing their own thing, and I'm um, I'm optimistic that it may actually increase the the services 
and price per service for nonprofits in general. The counter to that is, guess what companies like to do? Make more money. <laughs> so the, the pendulum tends to swing back and forth between the fractionalization of services and companies that provide services and then the consolidation and then the pendulum swings back. So we're, we're just in that, that current moment. And as that's happening, might be a good time, good time of year to go check the old contracts with folks and when things renew and say, hey, uh, maybe there are better prices to be found because there's going to be a bit of a, a bit of a battle coming. I believe winter is coming, Nick. Winter is coming. In, in summary. <laughs> I'm, in summary, I'm particularly interested in this because, George, in my day job, you know that I do a lot of web analytics work and lots of back-end analytics-type technical work. And the ultimate frustration in nonprofit technology is making tools talk to each other. So I'm excited for the potential for native integrations, um, which, of course, will take time to be built out. But what's exciting for me is that all these disparate tools might end up eventually being able to talk to each other. Uh, but at the same time, there's some potential downside when profit is the bottom line. So we will see. All right, George, this is an interesting one. Going back to our 2021-2022 New Year conversation, this is, we wanted to highlight Pew Research Center um, and their top findings for 2021. We think it's really important for the nonprofit sector to stay on top of trends in society, in culture. Um, they are, it's just, it's crucial, right? Um, so there's a list of, I think, the top 12 findings, and there's some really interesting ones in there. Um, one was that 72% of Americans say they know someone who was hospitalized or died from COVID-19. Um, that, uh, of course, coincides with our uh, most recent podcast episode where we talk about the effect of losing a parent or caregiver to COVID-19 on children, um, which you can also listen where you get this podcast. But um, some pretty staggering statistics. I know, George, one we zeroed in on that we wanted to chat about was the decrease in the number of religiously uh, affiliated Americans. Um, and as it turns out, or I guess the inverse of that is the number of religiously unaffiliated Americans has increased from a decade ago. So less people identify with a formal religion. What do we think the impact on that is in the nonprofit sector broadly, knowing how important uh, religiously affiliated organizations are wholly? Yeah, just to put that in context, you know, the, the stat is that it was a, a 10 percentage point rise from a decade ago. Um, about one in three Americans is essentially unaffiliated. Something that was, you know, fairly rare is becoming fairly common. On the other side of that, you see the stats for uh, religious affiliation declining specifically with uh, Christians to make up a majority of the U.S. population at 63%, but their share is 12 points lower in 2021. At a high level, there is a lot of nonprofit activity, donations, people supported through the work of churches, local churches, local communities. And I think when you see a decrease in that, you're going to see a decrease in certain types of donation profiles and an opportunity and potential increase 
for community-based organizations to pick up the mantle, the work, and the need in local communities and play even larger roles in doing this, sort of separating the religious affiliation between that service to each other and making it more attractive and appealing to people that are not religious but care deeply in serving each other, which doesn't have to necessarily be coupled with the church. And it's a very positive, I think, net effect of it. Uh, I think religion provides uh, incredible resources and support to people. However, I do, at my core, believe in disentangling the service to each other. If we're talking about food, about education and pieces like that, to essentially be separated and owned by community-based organizations that are uh, directly in charge of serving the people first and not also in the uh, serving of God and your next meal. Yeah, George, I think that's an interesting point. The flip side of that is going in the complete opposite direction from the uh, community-based angle is that a lot of the largest international development nonprofits are religiously affiliated. Um, Catholic Relief Services, which is ginormous, has enormous UAID, uh, USAID relationships. World Vision is another one. Um, and even uh, like the Vatican has ginormous assets and resources dedicated to like global peace, right? So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the international development space as well. Um, I'd be curious as to whether those organizations, those Catholic Relief Services, which are, um, mm -hmm. you know, actually managed by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, whether they're seeing their grassroots donors decrease. Um, that would be interesting to me. I don't know that. Um, I, I'd be interested in those broader trends. Um, but yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, we can try to dig up some some research. Yeah, it's a. Uh, I hadn't thought of I hadn't thought of that in that initial hot take, but the the downstream of that then is, and I have seen this as well. The religious narratives on a lot of that international aid and the larger global players, the the religious narratives are like held back to like the bottom of the about us page, and it's like, by the way, we are also like it is service first right? As opposed to church first. And that framing is probably going to need to accelerate um, even farther than where it is right now. But thanks. Yeah. Good point. The other piece in this study, and I, I encourage you to look at it because there's a, uh, there's something for everyone, but political engagement, as we've known for quite some time up, you know, the record breaking 2020 numbers, 7% up, uh, which means higher people voting, higher people caring about civic social issues, hopefully means higher engagement rates for nonprofits, people wanting to lift their voice, lift their hands to, to help a bit more. And there's this like nuance in the, the survey about uh, voting as a right versus a privilege falling along very political lines. Republicans saying that voting is a privilege versus a right in Democrats. And I, I don't think that's limited to just voting. I think that has to do with a, a lot of the, the rights versus privileges, arguments for things like education, welfare, and access to uh, equitable, equitable uh, treatment and resources. And it's just interesting and, and falls into messaging, right? How do you message both sides in that, in that note when you're a nonprofit? Because by the way, you're like, hey, we're trying to help everybody regardless of the color of your state. 
Yeah, that's an interesting trend. And we're going to see a ton of that. And like back to like addressing narratives, right? If you're a nonprofit in the advocacy or some kind of civic engagement space, the two topics that are going to be most prominent this year will be uh, access to, you know, uh, reproductive care and abortion rights and voting rights. That's that's what I think. Um, right now, the president's giving a speech on voting rights in Georgia. Um, so this is going to be leading the, the conversation when it, it comes to democracy. And uh, that disparity is wide. So uh, nonprofits will have to kind of walk, uh, walk a thin line there. Shall we move along to the summary? Please. All right. So this story is from Q. E K Q E D dot org. And this is a story that a bill has been introduced in uh, a bill has been introduced by a state senator, state of California, Senator Scott Weiner from San Francisco. No relation. To, no relation. <laughs> no, relation. <laughs> um, or no, no campaign finance. None of that um, uh, has introduced a bill to punish nonprofit groups that support or actively pursue the undermining of democratic elections. Now, the Senate bill is called uh, Bill 834, and essentially it would allow the state of California um, and their tax laws to um, suspend or deny tax-exempt status for any nonprofit registered in California that engages in such efforts. This is really interesting. I've thought a lot about this, like, okay, it's pretty, who can and what can be registered as a nonprofit is pretty broad. But the downside is now someone in some office is going to have to figure out what constitutes an attack on democracy. Um, And that's a pretty thankless job. Here's the problem. I found myself immediately agreeing aggressively with this, being like, obviously, if you're trying to tear down our, you know, public houses of, you know, democracy. And then, you know, quoted in here, uh, there's a whole ecosystem of nonprofits that have promoted the Gen 6 insurrection that have been profiting off of it, uh, the congressman uh, did say. And that's a problem, right? Like, what the heck? And the other side of it is, let's play this out. What constitutes uh, attacking democracy? How different is that from our last week when we're talking about Russia closing and locking out the the group that was challenging what the government had done in the past? And how far does this extend into, well, wait a minute, you challenged uh, the government on on this piece or that? Well, that seems very anti-democratic to uh, challenge how voting rights are working here. Like, it's in the eye of the beholder. And in general, um, I think that's depending on who's in charge. So this is one of those situations where you're totally in favor as long as your team is in power. But as soon as you give that same power to the other side, it is uh, it's a pendulum. And you pull it too hard one way, it's going to come back and hit something we don't want it to hit. So yeah. I, uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Two winers may that- not agree on this. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, George, that I that's just what I was thinking, right? We read this in the context of California. Okay. You know, uh, what happens in the context of a super red state? What happens in the context of, you know, a, a Texas, a, a Louisiana, where 
Not saying that, you know, liberal versus conservative states are right or wrong, but their definition of what constitutes an attack on democracy uh, is going to be quite different. So you're kind of uh, yeah, you're participating opening in up voter like, fraud. I'm sorry, yeah. look at all that voter fraud you're doing. You're trying to get people to the polls, which is a privilege. Um, and, you know, that that seems very anti-democratic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't think I don't I don't want to play that. Although I really would like to see the groups that are profiting off of Jan 6th and that like <laughs> it's, uh, it's hard because I dropped the hammer on those folks. Stop that. <laughs> don't do that. People died. Yeah. <laughs> People uh, and except, also democracy. <laughs> don't do that. Exactly. Except those groups are uh, ginormous national political campaigns, too. Also tax exempt. I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No worms there. <laughs> Um, oh man, we'll move to our next story. Um, and this is a story from local CBS affiliate WLKY, Kentucky. And this is a story, again, George, just following that narrative of how, um, in this case, Kentuckians um, are in desperate need uh, for more staff for for their nonprofits um and and nonprofits are are struggling to kind of fill in the gap due to staffing shortages via the the great resignation and other all sorts of different push and pull factors we've been talking on this podcast but um a lot of these nonprofits deal with with social services uh providing help with people uh with disabilities and and things like that um and the quote is nonprofits who contract with the state cannot compete with even fast food organizations. They cannot compete with Walmart or Amazon. Uh, they just simply don't have the financial resources to be able to do so. Um, so again, an example of that macro trend playing out on the local level, but in a lot of different places. We keep bringing this up because we keep seeing it and you're like, oh, it's just in Kentucky. Oh, it's just in you know this area of wherever New York. The truth is, this is if it's happening here, it's happening in many, many places. And we can't compete with, you know, <laughs> the likes of Amazon and fast food because prices are rising, inflation is going. And, you know, dollars, as we said before, are tied to specific economic outcomes that can easily, I can increase the price of my burger tomorrow, and I can't increase the price of my after school education program tomorrow in the same way to support the staff. So, Look, there are, I'll just be honest, about a couple hundred people who are going to listen to this. I have a solution. I just don't know where to put it in front of. Nick, hear me out. The solution to this is the fact that nonprofits, 501c3s, the employees of that nonprofit, there's technically payroll tax, payroll tax taken from dollars paid. So let's say that Kentucky nonprofit pays $100 to somebody working to help after school education. There is payroll tax to the tune of anywhere, you know, seven to 12, 14%, depending on local taxes and federal taxes and how they balance. That is technically paid by the nonprofit, a tax exempt organization. So, what you could potentially lobby for and push for is the removal of payroll tax. Essentially, you know, you're covering, I know, some of the elements of payroll tax for the employee from the, you know, state or federal level. But you're essentially saying if you choose to work for a nonprofit, that would allow the nonprofit that extra you know, 10% to pay into the actual salary, giving them a quick way to raise and compete on a salary basis. Hot take. I, uh, I like that proposal. I just need I one person listening. Just run with that. Challenge me. But like, the math works. Why is a Kentucky nonprofit saying, paying the same amount of payroll tax, the same dollar to dollar to dollar to dollar, right? And percentage wise, 
as Amazon. I'm going to leave this pause in. It makes no sense to me. It does, but it doesn't. I agree <laughs> with that. I mean, George, listen, I, you know, since I've started this podcast, I've since moved to uh, the wonderful city of New York and the taxes ridiculous <laughs> they're very very high and uh like that that difference could be extremely meaningful for nonprofits not just in expensive cities but all across the country i think so i and instead of a motion, blind stimulus of throwing money out there right it's very specific you will get this type of stimulus if you are employing people if you are putting people to work which by the way we love that's good all right yeah <laughs> Let me make this. I'm gonna. I'm gonna bring this theme back. I'm gonna look for reasons to bring it back because one one of our listeners is gonna know how to do this. Let's let's make it happen. We'll start a campaign. Let's get a petition going. Love me. All right. <laughs> how about a feel good story, George? I think that's what uh, the situation calls for, Nick. Yes. Well, just what the the doctor ordered. Um, so sad news. Listeners to this podcast will know that the late great Betty White everyone's hero, national treasure times a billion, um, passed away since we last recorded this podcast. But we wanted to share a story from the one and only people.com about how <laughs> Betty White helped a New Orleans nonprofit during Hurricane Katrina um, save animals. So it turns out that this nonprofit organization called the Audubon Nature Institute had uh, a group, uh, they operate a zoo and aquarium. Oh, they operate the New Orleans Zoo and Aquarium. Um, and they needed to evacuate their animals, um, particularly the penguins and sea otters. I guess they're more exposed to the elements. And Betty White helped pay to charter a plane um, to evacuate these animals, um, which is pretty incredible. Um, they were evacuated to Monterey and... Uh, that's just epic. I have nothing more to add. I'll let that story stand for itself. She was a huge, huge supporter of animal welfare uh, across the board. And the other nuance of this is that, you know, this is posthumously being reported because in large part, when she did a good deed, she didn't bring a brass band. And that's a quote that I uh, attribute to Harry Houdini, actually, randomly. And the point being that it's rare. It's rare right now to do a good in the world and not immediately run around saying, look what I did. And in fact, the Audubon didn't even know. They just a private plane showed up being like, get the otters on board. <laughs> Betty White operation, covert Betty White operation. So an amazing woman on the screen, off the screen will be missed. They do not make amazing human beings like that enough. All right. I agree. With that, good luck. Thanks, Nick. And if you Thanks, George. This has been Using the Whole Whale Podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. 
Thanks, as always, to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 